scripture reading this morning is found in the book of Ruth. Ruth chapter 1 verses 16 to 19. But Ruth replied, Don't urge me to leave you or to turn back from you. Where you go, I will go. And where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. And there I will be buried. May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if anything but death separates you and me. When Naomi realized that Ruth was determined to go with her, she stopped urging her. So the two women went on until they came to Bethlehem. Stories of survival in tough times. Well, the interesting thing about that title is that if you are very biblically literate, you know that the Bible speaks of little else. <laughs> Most of the stories uh, that come to us either come out of tough times or are about tough times. And I'm just going to remind you a few of a few of the very, very common ones. And if you uh, know your Bibles well, uh, be patient. And if you are newer to the scriptures, these are some key stories uh, for Jews and Christians. Uh, New Testament would be for Christians. Uh, the Jewish Bible, uh, the Torah, and so forth would be for uh, Jews. But these are defining stories of, of people who came through hard times and who did so with God's help and blessing. One of the first stories is uh, not that obvious in a way and very obvious in another. It's the story of Noah. And the way in which it's obviously a hard time is that when you endure 40 days and 40 nights of rain and when you have a flood that is massive at, at least and global, uh, possibly even, you have a tremendous... Uh, endangerment, you have a tremendous upheaval, you have a tremendously difficult time. The place that's not so obvious is that prior to this 40 days and 40 nights of rain and the flood, we don't have record of rain. And so things were as they had always been. There was no difficulty per se, except that God asked Noah to build something that people weren't used to seeing and weren't used to... Uh, comprehending. It wasn't an everyday thing and it made Noah a freak to put it mildly. So Mo Noah and, and talk about economic resources I, you know this thing was huge and required a great deal of labor and nearly a hundred years to build. So Noah puts life energy into building a boat on dry land. That's tough times. Imagine the social isolation. Imagine the societal alienation. Imagine crazy old Noah. Well, at least he keeps the town economy going. At least this nutcase is buying supplies and keeping things rolling for the rest of us. We're told that people gathered to taunt him on a regular basis. And those people who taunted weren't so eager to taunt once the flood tides rose. Noah and eight people 
came through the great flood. Noah was faithful in a time that wasn't obviously difficult, but was very difficult for him. And God provided for him an ark of safety and an ark of salvation. Other common stories include the story of Joseph. Not again, obviously a difficult story. He is nomadic, lives with Jacob, his father, and his brothers, and Jacob's wives and concubines. And uh, they have their own clan. And he's the favored son of the favored wife. Until one day he's betrayed by his brothers. At first, there are those who want to kill him, and then they decide it would be more humane to simply sell him as a slave to Amalekite traders, which they do. You know, many of you know the story. He ends up in Egypt, purchased as a slave by captain of the guard for Pharaoh, and rises in his service, determined to do the best that he can do with what he's assigned to do. He's not going to be able to get back home. He has no rights. He's not a voter. He's not not going to be an important person here, but he can do the best that he can do. And he's obedient. He's obedient. And so Joseph serves in the house of Potiphar and rises through the ranks of servants until he's master of the house head of the servants and he's young and by now he's gotten over the terrible journey that he took from his homeland to Egypt and he's fair and Potiphar's wife decides that he would make a nice toy and attempts to seduce him well in the process he flees she grabs his cloak or coat and holds it as evidence of him attacking her for her husband Now, we would uh, suspect that if that story were true, he would have been executed. So we believe that Potiphar didn't believe his wife and simply threw Joseph in jail. Now, could there be much tougher times than being accused wrongly and ending up in an Egyptian prison over the deal? That's a sour turn of events, even for a slave. And in prison, he does the same thing. He is obedient and he is faithful and he serves the captain of the guard of the prison and seeks to make life better for himself and other prisoners. He's helpful. And he becomes more and more entrusted and one day he meets two prisoners from the king's own household, a baker and a butler. And these two have profound dreams And they tell Joseph their disturbing dreams, and he shares with them the meaning. The butler will once again serve the king. The baker will be hanged. And indeed, this is what happens. Well, to the butler, Joseph says, Now when you return to Pharaoh's household, remember me, for I've done nothing wrong. And the butler returns, and uh, true to his word, promptly forgets Joseph promptly forgets his old circumstances, finds it inconvenient 
to remind anyone of a Hebrew slave in an Egyptian prison. And Joseph rots for another couple of years until Pharaoh has a dream, a very disturbing one, not to you and me, it's weird to you and me, but to him it was really a powerful thing. Seven really skinny, emaciated, gross-looking cows come out of the river and devour seven healthy, full-fleshed, beautiful, bright-eyed cows, carnivorous cows, cannibalistic cows. And Pharaoh can't get it out of his head. Who knows the meaning? And the butler just conveniently remembers this lost Hebrew slave. It's a story, ultimately, as all of these stories are, of redemption, of God's capacity to redeem, God's capacity to step into difficult situations and redeem them. And Joseph is cleaned up and brought before Pharaoh and gives him the interpretation of the dream. And Pharaoh is so impressed with this young man that he puts him in charge of implementing a plan that will save Israel. It is a plan to gather grain for seven years as the harvest is a plenty in preparation for seven years of famine. And Joseph does his work and he marries an Egyptian wife and he has children and he is second in command in Egypt. And Israel falls prey to hard times. There's no water and there's no food in the land. And Joseph, the son of Jacob, is in the land of plenty, having saved food. And Jacob, now named Israel, admonishes his remaining sons to go to Egypt for food. It will be one of many stories of Israel going to Egypt and coming back from Egypt. And God used this Hebrew slave, this betrayed son, to save his family and save a nation because he was faithful. A very good friend of mine died 11 months or so ago, James. He was an elder in my church in Hollywood. When times were tough for me, he used to say, Pastor, just keep on breathing. It was good advice. Just keep breathing. The implication was so clear. Not only did it mean take a deep breath and sort of calm yourself, that sort of immediate sort of understanding of that imperative, but it implied that life goes on. We just need to keep doing what we're doing. And in the Christian walk, faithfulness to God is a significant and integral part of that. Obedience becomes a part of that equation. Not the kind of obedience that's blind, not the kind of obedience that's... of one who is beholden because while we are beholden, we have been called sons and daughters, not servants. We have been called friends, not slaves. 
Our obedience is a, an act of gratitude and love. It's a way of recognizing that we don't always see the path ourselves. We don't always see the way clearly. It's a way of, it's a way of engaging a vision and a scope of vision that goes way beyond our own. It's a way of exercising trust in such a way that it has a saving effect, a redeeming effect in our lives. We have no record of Joseph working to escape. As noble as the effort might have been to get out of Egypt and get back home, we have no record of him spending his time and energies in those ways. We have no record of Joseph trying to get even with Potiphar once he gets to the the power of position that he did. We have no record of him trying to get even with his wife. He trusted, he followed, he listened, he did his best, he obeyed. These are lessons to us for how to survive tough times. Because comparatively, I don't know what a tough time is. I don't. We had that terrible tsunami years back. Terrible. But it was isolated to a portion of the globe. We've had terrible things happen in our country. And I can't say they don't affect us because they do. But life kind of goes on. I remain free. I remain able to work. I remain largely healthy. Tough times. What do they mean? And most of us do. Some of us struggle with health. Some of us struggle with unemployment. Some of us struggle with... Uh, retirement and our the value of our portfolios have gone down. Some of us look around and, and we're scared by what we see in the global markets and in the global uh, politics, and maybe we should be. But these were really tough times in Scripture, and they can stand so instructively for us. I think of Daniel, very common story again, a Hebrew boy part of the royal palace at a time when the royal palace was run over and taken captive by the Babylonians. We don't know what happened to his parents. They may have been taken, they may have been killed. But he was found to be teachable and fair and he was hauled off in chains to Babylon where he was made to learn everything that was an anathema to his natural faith. And Daniel excelled. And he reminded himself daily of who he was by his demeanor and his diet and his prayer life. And when pressures were applied, he remained the person he was called by God. We could go through story after story after story in Old Testament and New. And the context is tough times. Radically tough times often. Very different than our own sense of what, what is shaking our world. Very different. 
There's a wonderful story that I want to focus on this morning as a story of survival and the way in which God chooses to bless, the way in God God enters our our stories. And it's a wonderful story of redemption, and we'll get to that in just a minute. It's the story of Naomi and Ruth. It's an Israelite story, and it takes place before the time of the kings, during the time of the judges. And there is, as we have recited in the last couple of stories, a famine again in the land, in Bethlehem. So, Elimelech and his wife Naomi and their two sons, Malan and Kilian, went to Moab and lived. These two men married Moabitesses named Orpah and Ruth. Ruth is the namesake of the book. And after they were there about ten years, both man and Kilian also died. And Naomi's husband had died there in Moab as well. And to put a geography on this, uh, when you're in Jerusalem, it's up on a hill. And as you descend the hill on the freeway, headed toward the Dead Sea, toward the south, as you head down toward the south of Israel, the Moabite mountains are off across the valley, across the Jezreel, I want to say Jezreel, but across the valley, toward the Jordanian side. And the mountains there that you can see are not particularly high, but this is the territory of Moab. And so literally today, on a freeway, in a car, you're talking about an hour's journey, maybe an hour and a half from Jerusalem. And Jerusalem is very close to Bethlehem. But in biblical times, you would have been talking about a fair journey, uh, a foot or on the back of a donkey from uh, Bethlehem to Moab and or back. So this family leaves the vicinity of Jerusalem and the vicinity of Bethlehem and makes this journey across the valley near the Dead Sea up into the mountains of Moab and lives there. And the husband of Ruth dies, I mean Naomi dies, excuse me, and the two husbands of Orpah and Ruth die, the two sons of Naomi. Now, these are, by definition, tough times. You see, first we have the loss of the patriarch, and then we have the loss of the heirs. And we've got to put ourselves a little bit into the civilization in order to get a picture of just how tough these times are. The overall context is what? What's happening overall in the land of Israel? Famine. The overall context is famine. Then the context of our story is that of a family displaced by famine, aliens in another land. And what happens to the patriarch? He dies. Would that be a tragedy in your family? It's a tragedy. And then what happens when the two young men in the family die? What would that do to your sense of well-being? Anybody feel a loss of stability there? Now imagine that you're in a land living as a woman. For women, that shouldn't be too hard. (laughs) Living as a woman with no rights. 
per se. Now what does that add to these tough times? Well, Naomi knows that the gig is up. She knows that it's time to leave. And she says to Orpah and to Ruth, go back to your households. You're young. You can remarry. You can be happy. You can have a family yet. I'm too old for a husband. And if I were lucky enough to have a husband right now and were able to bear him two more sons, would you wait for them to grow up to marry them? You wouldn't. You couldn't. It's foolishness. Go home to your households and remarry. Now, why was this significant? This was significant because when a woman left her father's house, she went to her mother's house. There was no job in the city, no couple of years on her own working somewhere uh, professionally or whatever. Uh Uh-uh. Father's house to husband's house, and now there's no husband. So she can go back to her father's house or she can become a prostitute, or she can wander the land, I guess, and be vulnerable to all sorts of indignities. Orpah chooses to go home. But Ruth says to Naomi, don't make me go, just as our our reading today was, don't make me go back. I will go wherever you go. I will will live where you live. I want to die where you die. Your people are, are my people. And I want to serve the God that you serve. Naomi realizes that Ruth is for real, that she's not going to go back home, that even though she's a Moabitess and even though Naomi is a Jew, Ruth is going to go with her back to her homeland. So she goes back. And as small towns are prone to talk, this small town starts talking when these women show up. Who are these women? And you'll love the biblical question, who do they belong to? I'm sorry, ladies. Just the context of the times. We're trying to get a feel for how how it was. Who do they belong to? And the story emerges. Naomi is a widow. And her daughter-in-law, the Moabitess, Ruth, is a widow. And Naomi counsels Ruth in the cultural ways of Israel. Go out and start gleaning. We do have kinsmen here. There is a kinsman redeemer. Oh, that's an important word. And I don't want to go into so much detail that you fall asleep at this hour. But I'm going to try to give you something to hold on to. Land past from father to firstborn son, etc. Land could never be taken from a family unless it became extinct. Land belonged to a family forever. It could be sold temporarily or leased, but at the jubilee of 50 years, it would be returned to the original owners. So when Caleb and Joshua settled Israel and divided up the territories and in the subsequent years of the judges in which more territory was taken and given to the half-tribe of Manasseh and to, I think it was uh, Dan and, anyway, I'm not recalling the last tribe. When these things were done in this period of time, land was given to each clan or family and divided up. So 
Elimelech was a landowner. His wife, Naomi, had two sons. Those sons, particularly the firstborn, were inheritors of that land. If only one son had died, all of the land would have gone to the other son and would have remained in the family, and that man would have sought to have had sons to pass the land on down to. But the men in the family were gone. The women retained ownership, but they had no real rights surrounding the land. The land was vulnerable because whoever married them would would possess the land. So in order to keep it in the family, the law of Moses specified that if a brother died, for example, and left his widow without an heir, the brother had to marry the widow and provide an heir that the land might be inherited in the brother's name. Now that makes no sense to us, okay? That family structure is just, I might as well be speaking another language. That family structure doesn't make sense to us, but it made a tremendous amount of sense to the people of the day. So when they go back to Bethlehem, to this area, Naomi is well aware that there's a kinsman redeemer. She has a relative that's close enough in age that he should take responsibility for marrying Ruth and providing her son an heir, an heir that he did not have. Ruth starts gathering grain and she finds favor in the eyes of the man who owns the field, Boaz. By the way, that was the name of our tour guide leader in Israel when we were there in December. Boaz, great guy. Anyway, Boaz, this landowner, um, notices Ruth and begins to ask after her and instructs his laborers not to touch her. They're not to interfere with her in any way. And Naomi counsels her to, to stay close to the women. Well, he says, don't, don't even get in her way if she starts to actually take part of the harvest. Let her do her thing. Let her gather grain. And at the end of her first day, she has an entire apron full of grain, which is a lot of grain. She goes home, and Naomi is so impressed. Who is this person who's taken notice of you and been so kind to you? Well, little time goes by, not much. And Ruth is counseled at the end of harvest day to go find Boaz at the threshold. He will have had supper and had his beer or whatever his uh, wine was and will be in a good mood and sleepy and ready for his, his night. And she is to lay down at his feet. Now, this is an act of great vulnerability. It's akin to a king holding out a scepter or withdrawing it. And the test was that the cloak that Boaz would sleep under would be removed from his feet, and she would cuddle into his feet, basically. And if he took her, he would be acting as kinsman redeemer. And if he did not, I don't know what the consequences were. But Ruth is obedient. Is this a crazy story or what? 
It's in your Bible. Please read it. See if I got it right. It's only four chapters. So Ruth does as Naomi instructs. She goes. She finds Boaz well-fed and well-drunk and uh, drank, drunk, drank, drunk. Uh, anyway, he is uh, happy and snoring on the threshold there and she removes the cloak from his feet and snuggles into his feet and in the night something disturbs him and he wakes up from his slumber and finds this woman at his feet would that be strange men i I have to say that would be a novelty wouldn't it and he says who are you and she says i'm ruth the daughter-in-law of naomi the moabitess and he says oh you have shown me great favor but stay there, rest there until the morning. You have a redeemer, a kinsman redeemer who is closer to you than I, but I will speak to him. In other words, here's how it would work. If I were the oldest boy of a family with three younger brothers and I had no sons and I died, my next oldest brother would be the first kinsman redeemer of my wife in order to have a son by her in my name. My next brother down would be the one after that, etc., down to the youngest. If none of my brothers were able to act as kinsman redeemer, then it would fall to my first cousin. And probably it would, be a, it would have to be a patriarchal cousin and it would have to be someone, uh, again, of, of age or stature. So the Kinsman Redeemer program worked like this. And he says, there's someone closer. So she does as he says, waits there till morning. She gets ready to go home. And he says, make sure nobody saw you sleeping here. Gives her about eight ephahs of grain. I don't know how much that is, but probably another apron full anyway. And sends her back to her mother-in-law with this gift. Well, she gets back home, and Naomi's thrilled. This is a good sign. Things are going very well here. Tough times, but the system's working. Boaz goes to the city gates and meets with the elder, and when he sees the kinsman redeemer who's closest, the one who has the obligation, he says, Brother, may I speak to you today? They gather at the gates, and he brings ten elders around, and he says, Elimelech owned a parcel of land, and Naomi is going to sell it. Would you like to buy it, or shall I? And the kinsman redeemer says, Oh, yes, it's good land, absolutely, I'll buy it. Boaz is so clever. And then he says, Ah, and then the day you purchase it, you will inherit a wife, Ruth, by whom you'll need to provide an heir. Ooh, he says, that could make my home life difficult. That could endanger my own estate. Any of you men understand that? Nobody's raising their hands, terrified to answer that question. Yes, even today, men, that would endanger your own estate. That's the way that goes. So um, he decides that he can't be the kinsman redeemer, and Boaz pledges to be the kinsman redeemer, and you know what he gets in the deal? A little bit of biblical trivia. The nearest kinsman redeemer takes off his sandal and hands it to Boaz, and all of the elders are witnesses, and the deal is sealed. Boaz will be the kinsman redeemer. He will buy the land from Naomi. That means he will give her a sum of money for it, and he will take Ruth as a wife. 
which he does. And the Lord finds favor with Ruth, and she bears a son. And his name was Obed. This gift of God. And tough times become not so tough because of a redeemer. And this son bears a son whose name is Jesse. And this son bears a son whose name is David, who will be the first king, second king of Israel, and the greatest. And David, and Obed, and Jesse, and Ruth, and Boaz will be ancestors of the Lord Jesus Christ. How do we survive tough times? Remain faithful. O kinsman redeemer, we thank you for taking us in tough times, for loving us and for restoring us. We ask your blessing as we go from this place. May we be ever faithful. Amen.